It is the final Fish Bites of 2019. Eli Sussman here to host it for you. Grateful as always to have you tuning in. All Fish Stripes podcast episodes should be available on your usual podcast provider. If not, just check the website. Fishstripes.com slash podcast is where we organize it all. Uh, by far the most productive year in the history of our podcast recordings, we had one, two, three, I think about six different hosts over the course of the year. Uh, a lot of them coming back for 2020, going to be adding some new ideas as well. It's going to be very fun, uh, considering that we're coming up right at the new year. This is usually a time to be very reflective, um, maybe even take it easy when it comes to analyzing all things Miami Marlins, but uh, we're not going to do that. A, a big surprise not a surprise, really, but breaking news that just so happens to pop up uh, just in time to be recorded on this episode on Saturday. The Marlins, per multiple reports, have reached an agreement with outfielder Corey Dickerson, the biggest free agent signing so far under new Marlins ownership. Two years, $17.5 million guaranteed. Uh, still awaiting full details about any possible incentives. It seems to be just a straight-up two-year deal with no options. And, uh, again, by far the largest commitment that the Marlins have made to any one player since new ownership took over. Uh, the previous largest commitment was the Miguel Rojas extension for just over $10 million. And uh, the largest amount that they'd ever guaranteed to one player in what is now, what, over two years under new ownership, the largest commitment to any single player had been Victor Victor Mesa and the $5.25 million signing bonus that he received from the team as an international amateur free agent. Dickerson more than triples that guarantee, and there's good reason for it. He's a former All-Star, a former Gold Glove Award winner, uh, seemingly right near the prime of his career. And of course, he was a free agent, didn't have any draft pick compensation attached to him. Uh, reportedly, at least one other team had some serious interest, the St. Louis Cardinals, at, at one point in the offseason. And uh, surely some of the other teams that have since signed other outfielders were uh, asking around for him because Dickerson has a great offensive track record, a very interesting defensive track record. And overall, he's just a very complicated player, one that uh, I'm pretty confident makes the Marlins better in 2020. And we'll see if he's around for 2021. Uh, that That's still to be determined considering all the outfield prospects coming up through the pipeline. Uh, but here's what you guys are probably aware of is that the Marlins had also been seriously considering Yasiel Puig, who remains a free agent as of this recording on Sunday, December 29th. The Marlins uh, just locking up a guy that they felt would make their team better, not willing to wait for Puig, who reportedly has several teams still trying to get his attention in free agency. And Dickerson is a very complicated player. Like I said, one that is a pretty clear upgrade over who the Marlins had internally as major league options heading into 2020, but he's he's a complicated player, and that's what we're going to be uh, dedicating the bulk of this episode is to going a big deep dive on what the Marlins have done here in, in signing Dickerson. 
the biggest commitment they've made to a single player under this ownership group and why they did it now why we think they may have preferred him to some of the alternatives and what to reasonably expect from him in 2020 whether it makes sense to keep him on the roster in 2021 uh, and just a really detailed breakdown of who he is as a player uh, once we're done with that we'll finish up with some new year's resolutions from the marlins several uh, general things that the marlins should be looking to do in 2020 that are entirely entirely within their control and, and that's the thing um uh, sometimes we want to ha- make wishful suggestions to the team about what we hope they should do about things they should try to do um but the the whole premise of making a new year's resolution is about your own discipline and, and motivation etc things that are fully within your control and so i have a couple suggestions a few particular actions that they can take in 2020 that should put the team in a better place moving forward long term as uh, this offseason they've taken a big step forward in towards relevancy I think if we're being real about it, they're not all that relevant yet on a league-wide scale, still uh, facing a big uphill battle in the National League East. And we're gonna, But Dickerson himself was a very important individual move. You could say that um, one reason why this Marlins offseason has been so uh, widely praised, I would say, not just within South Florida, but across the league, is because the Marlins have addressed a handful of different positions from backup catcher to first base to utility infield to their bullpen, and they've taken on such little risk in this process. They've made a lot of additions by subtractions, considering some of the veteran players who struggled last year entered free agency and have not been re-signed. Uh, so, so that that's an obvious one that's in their favor, and they already had solid internal options lined up because of all the trades that they've made in the previous years to acquire prospect depth. We now have s- several new prospects that are ready to break through to the majors in 2020 uh, in, instead of plucking veterans off the, the junk heap as they did last year. They have guys that have really significant potential ready to break through when they have an opening in the rotation um if they do have position player injuries they have great internal options that are young and have very high ceilings players that you could reasonably expect at least in a couple cases that they'll uh, immediately show themselves to be productive big leaguers because that is their pedigree and the results that they've shown in the minor leagues there's going to be a lot of internal improvement from the team and the outside acquisitions that they've made as I mentioned, just taking on such minimal risk. And this leads us to Dickerson, because Dickerson, more so than any of the other offseason additions, there is some risk attached to him. It's $17.5 million guaranteed. We'll wait to find out the exact distribution of that money over the course of the deal. Uh, But assuming that it is spread out over both years relatively evenly, then that is a, a significant investment in 2021 a year that the Marlins have been targeting for a while now as the one that they'll really be making their big leap towards potentially being a contending team on the periphery of maybe the wild card race if everything goes absolutely right. And so now this is a significant uh, amount of a chunk of money that is committed to 2021 if they're not able to trade Dickerson between now and then. Some background on Dickerson. He was drafted out of Meridian Community College in Mississippi. And that's probably not a school that you guys are all that familiar with, but it immediately set off a light bulb in my mind because in 2018, the first draft under this 
revamped Marlins front office, they selected two players in that same draft class out of Meridian Community College. Those were outfielders Milton Smith II and Davis Bradshaw. Um, Both of them were very productive coming out of the draft in 2018. Uh, Smith was pretty good again here in 2019, playing mostly for Batavia. Bradshaw took a little bit of a step back. Um, But nonetheless, this is a community college that has a surprisingly strong track record of producing professional baseball talent. The most notable alum out of Meridian is certainly Cliff Lee. Uh, Cliff Lee, who you remember as one of the more effective pitchers in baseball during the latter half of the 2000s and the early 2010s. He has since retired. Great strike thrower, uh, an workhorse, won a Cy Young Award, uh, pitched in the postseason several times for the Phillies. And aside from Cliff Lee, Corey Dickerson is the second most accomplished alum of Meridian. He has now been in the majors for one, two, three, seven years prior to earning his free agency this past year, played with the Rockies, developed by the Rockies, came up to the majors with the Rockies, got traded to the Rays, got traded to the Pirates, and then this past year during the middle of the year got traded to the Phillies. So he has played with a total of four organizations at the major league level. And for every single one of them, he has been an above average hitter. This is if you're looking at my favorite tool would be weighted runs created plus, which normalizes everything uh, on uh, about a scale starting at 100 representing the league average. If you're below 100, you're below average. If you're above 100, you're above average. And it incorporates everything that happens as a batter everything that you do in the batter's box. For his career, he has a 117 WRC+, plus, 17% better than league average. And doing that over the course of nearly 3,000 plate appearances, uh, that means you're significantly better than the average major league hitter. During the 2019 season, Dickerson split time between the Pirates, where he started the year and then got traded over to the Phillies, Overall, a 304 batting average, 341 on base, 565 slugging. So he had a 127 WRC plus last year, which was his highest over the last several years. He he missed a big chunk of the year between a shoulder strain and then his season ended prematurely because of a broken foot. And so that limited him to 279 plate appearances. That about It's about half a season for a guy like Dickerson. And he was producing a 1.0 wins above replacement, according to Fangraphs. So if you prorate that over the course of a mostly healthy season, you get about two wins above replacement. And that is more or less an average starting quality player in the major leagues. So the Marlins getting that kind of player for uh, less than $9 million a year, it seems. The previous couple of years with the Pirates in 2018, with the Rays in 2017, he was worth over two and a half wins above replacement. And if you look at those three years combined together, um, his value is it's nearly a perfect match for what Yasiel Puig had done in his three prior seasons before entering free agency and also lines up pretty well with Avasael Garcia, who was another player that the Marlins were known to be targeting at various points this offseason. So the contract amount, the $17.5 million, is also a pretty fair market rate. It doesn't appear that there were all that many complicated factors going on in here because uh, Cole Calhoun, another lefty-swinging, power-hitting veteran outfielder who's available, he got two years $16 million from the Arizona Diamondbacks earlier this month. And Garcia, he got two years $20 million from the Milwaukee Brewers. 
uh, not that long ago. Both those guys got club options attached to their deals, um, which you could say probably brings down the overall value a little bit because if they do perform well, then they don't have control over themselves for the 2022 season. Uh, Garcia has a bit of a funky vesting option going on in there that uh, would allow him to enter free agency if he is durable enough. All these outfielders had their own warts. Um, for Dickerson, the biggest wart probably uh, the two are the durability questions and the platoon questions because he was a guy that uh, I'm going to cite some reporting from Craig Mish, the fantasy sports radio host, also Swings and Mish's host. Um, he, he noted that the Marlins had been eyeing Dickerson for a, a good amount of time this offseason. Joe Forsaro of MLB.com says that Dickerson had been a target all the way from the beginning of the offseason, but both of them expressing some concerns that he's not a true everyday player. Uh, aside from that one year in 2017 when he was an all-star with the Rays, that was the one year that he came closest to being like a true everyday starter, 629 plate appearances. He hasn't come all that close to that total in any of his other major league seasons. Um, with the injury front, uh, as I said this past year, a shoulder strain and a broken foot. If you back it up further enough, I guess this would be all the way to 2015, a rib fracture, and earlier in 2015, plantar fasciitis in his foot. So you know, you now have multiple foot injuries in his career, but there's a big gap between 2015 and 2019. Um, and, uh, the foot injury that ended his most recent year is not expected to impact his readiness for spring training. Uh, we need to look deeper, though, into the platoon splits because, as I noted, overall, he is a far above average hitter in his career and coming off an especially strong year with the Phillies and the Pirates. Uh, the question is whether he can even be in the lineup effectively against left-handed pitching. And there's some really interesting stuff when you dig into this because he does have very sizable platoon splits in his career. He is one of the better active players in hitting right-handed pitching for his major league career. An 866 career OPS against righties. A uh, hundred and two of his home runs, 115 career home runs, 102 against righties. And so if you do the math, 115 career home runs, 102 against righties, that's only 13 in his career against left-handed pitching. His playing time has been very significantly reduced against lefties, making up about 23, 22% of his career played appearances um, so his previous teams have not had full confidence in him being productive against left-handed pitching. Uh, the batting average is pretty similar against lefties and righties, 290 against righties, 272 against lefties. Uh, the the on-base percentage is all right against lefties, a 310. But you see the big difference in his power, where he has very good home run power against right-handers. But his approach clearly changes when he's at a platoon disadvantage. Uh, only a 409 career slugging, an isolated power of 137. When you subtract the batting average from the slugging percentage, he had just 13 home runs in what is basically the equivalent of a full season against left-handed pitching. That's so. His approach is a lot different. Um, he's still somewhat success, somewhat adequate in those situations because he has a very high batting average on balls in play. Uh, the interesting part of me is that if you look at his year by year, it seems that he's been really improving in this aspect of his game. Th those are very large splits if you look at his career totals, but uh, a lot of that damage was done in particular in 2015 and in 2016. 
Uh, if you look at the past three years, though, an 820 OPS against lefties in 2017, 735 in 2018, 782 OPS against lefties this past season, including three home runs, even though he was missing so much time with his injuries. So that really jumps out to me, the fact that he has been far improved against lefties over the past few years as compared to earlier in his career. I don't think it's necessarily an automatic that he sits down. Overall, though, the power isn't really there when he's facing left-handed pitching. So why is that? Uh, the first thing that jumps out is that Dickerson is is not a pull-happy type of player. He is the total opposite of that. Dickerson, in 2019, led all of Major League Baseball in hitting to the opposite field, the rate of his batted balls going to left field, considering that he's batting from the left side. If he pulls the ball, goes to right, going to the opposite field is to left. He is the highest rate of using the opposite field out of any player last year that had at least 200 plate appearances. So I'm comparing him to some guys that are qualified hitters, uh, and he wasn't qualified because of the injuries, but 36.7% of his batted balls going the other way. And for his career, a 31.6% career rate, which is right up there near the very top of active players who have been in the majors the last handful of years, 31.6%, nearly a third of his lifetime batted balls in the majors using the opposite field. You're not expecting the ball to come and hit your feet. You're standing out there. Shot it right through. What a piece of hitting by Corey Dickerson. And that brings in a run. In fact, he's got a double out of that baby. It's four to three. Pirate pinch hitters continue to do the job. I mean, that, that again, we've seen Corey Dickerson do this so many times a year ago, just hitting the balls the other way. Uh, we saw it last night, and that ball uh, runs off the plate. Stayed on that changeup and just sent it right down the line. See, not over swinging. The head's down, playing pepper, and uh, hit it softly enough to where the ball doesn't get out to the left fielder, Ramirez, so Dickerson can get in the second. And that gives you a little bit of confidence that he can age kind of well because he uses all fields. It makes him difficult to defend. Throughout his career, he has been a beneficiary of some really inflated a batting average on balls in play. If you, across most of the league, that number usually normalizes pretty close to a 300 batting average, slightly lower than that in the high 290s for batting average on balls in play. And for Dickerson, he has a lifetime 331 Babbitt. So the question is, how much of that is luck? How much of that is skill? And there's some pretty compelling suggestions in here that make you think that there are signs that would indicate that Dickerson is in control in a lot of these situations. And he's, uh, he's the reason why he's overperforming in this metric because of his particular approach and skill set. Only one year in his entire career, 2016, did he have a BABIP uh, below the league average. Every year it's been, besides that, it's been significantly better than 300, including a 344 figure uh, this past year between his two teams. And uh, I would say that using all fields is the biggest reason why that's the case uh, because the other batted ball data actually isn't all that um, impressive and not really that extraordinary. He's a guy that uh, even though he has consistently hit for above average power as an overall player, he's coming off a year where his average exit velocity on all his batted balls was just 87 miles per hour. So that's below the major league average. A guy, a guy that is known for his bat that actually does not 
uh, consistently hit the ball all that hard. His hard hit rate, again, more or less right there at the league average. Um, and this past year, there was a huge disparity between what's called his weighted on-base average and his expected weighted on-base average. StatCast will use the launch angle, the exit velocity of his balls, and um, try to approximate the results that he gets because of the quality of his batted ball contact. And they think that based on how he was impacting the ball and the trajectory of those balls, that he was more or less an average hitter this past year. Now, we've already emphasized that he was a great hitter, not average, but just on the expected weighted on-base average that he had last year, a 318 figure, which is pretty much the norm across Major League Baseball. Yet his weighted on-base average, the actual results that he had as a player were 368, a 50-point disparity between his expected weighted on-base and his actual weighted on-base average. We need to try to parse out how much of that he's controlling and how much of that is luck. He did spread the ball to the opposite field more than ever before, and that's something that would not really be reflected in these type of calculations. So that would be um, something that is more sustainable going forward as long as he continues to use left field very frequently. Uh, but last year, uh, one thing that he did that was counterproductive is he was popping up a lot of balls. 17.5% of his fly balls were infield pop-ups, which is um, the most automatic out that you can make in baseball, if you think about it, popping up the ball. Obviously, if you strike out, you're not giving yourself any chance whatsoever. Um, but in terms of actually putting balls in play, the worst thing you can do as a batter is pop it up. That's not something that's given given him much trouble in the past, uh, but for whatever combination of reasons, he did waste a lot of plate appearances in 2019 on pop-ups. That's something that you'd like to see normalized. There is another concerning trend with his stat cast data. This is a guy that is now coming off his age 30 season, and if you want rewind the previous couple years, he's seen a decline in his maximum exit velocity. The, the exit velo that he produces at his very hardest hit ball of the season each of the past three years. In 2017, he maxed out his exit velocity at 113 miles per hour. Uh, last year, he maxed it out. In 2018, he maxed out at 111 miles per hour. In 2019, he only maxed out at 109 miles per hour. And uh, that, that still sounds good. If you hit it at 109 and you hit a line driver fly ball, it's going over the wall for a home run. Where you walk, mm -hmm. you get hit by a pitch, you strike out, you know, or, or you hit a home run. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness, the beat goes on for Corey Dickerson. This guy is unconscious. He's now homered in four straight games, hitting a total of five after clubbing two here yesterday. That being said, it's not all that exceptional for someone that prides themselves on their bat. It would pale in comparison to someone like Jorge Alfaro. Uh, even Garrett Cooper is someone that would make a harder maximum contact than Dickerson has the past few years. Uh, this actually shows some resemblance between Dickerson and VR as offensive players, where VR is coming off, as we've mentioned previously, uh, 
in previous episodes, Jonathan VR coming off a good offensive year with the Orioles, set a career high in home runs, and he did it without really lighting up uh, the, the boards in terms of the distance on his home runs or the exit velocity. So it is possible to be successful, and, and Dickerson is someone that has had some consistent success as an offensive player, even though he doesn't light it up with his physical tools. A couple other elements of Dickerson's offensive game that I want to touch on, uh, beginning with his selectivity at the plate or his lack thereof. Dickerson is notoriously non-selective as a batter. He had a chase rate last season of 46.2%, according to Fangraphs. He swung at nearly half of all the pitches that he saw outside the strike zone. He swung at the vast majority of pitches that he saw as a player overall, but just in terms of the ones that were outside the zone, according to our tracking data, he offered at 46% of them. And to put that in perspective, that was a career high rate for Dickerson, but not by all that much. It was pretty similar to his previous years where he's consistently hovered in the 40s, dating back to 2015, the last five years. Overall, he is a 448 Outside the zone swing percentage, that is the second highest in Major League Baseball behind only Royals catcher Salvador Perez, uh, who missed this past season. Perez offers a lot defensively, but one of his big flaws as a player has been his lack of selectivity and how infrequently he gets on base. And Dickerson has some tendencies that align with that, where because he does swing so often outside the strike zone, he... he doesn't take a lot of balls and therefore he can't draw all that many walks a lot of his offensive value is predicated on simply hitting the ball hitting it to where the fielders aren't or hitting it over the wall and for most of his major league career he's been able to do that at a well above average rate with a really just the 2016 season being the only huge blip on his whole career when it comes to being a solid bat to have in your lineup productively. The reason why he's able to get away with swinging at so many bad pitches is that he makes contact with a lot of them. He has a 71.5% contact percentage outside the strike zone over those past five years, the same span as we just mentioned before, swinging at about 45% outside the zone. And of those that he's swinging at, making contact at 71.5%. That is a very similar Uh, contact percentage on bad pitches as Mookie Betts and Anthony Rizzo. Now, those are just the couple most flattering comparisons I made. There's some nobodies in that situation as well. But just something to keep in mind that it is one of the higher rates in baseball as well. It's not as extreme as how many he swings at overall, but he is very good relative to the rest of the league at actually putting those balls in play as well uh, in line with some of the better more well-rounded hitters in all of baseball. He's not quite on the same level as Mookie or Rizzo as an overall offensive player, but um, has some interesting comparisons between those two. And uh, the other part that's difficult to reconcile between all these, knowing how aggressive he is, knowing that he's very aggressive on the first pitch as well. He's a guy the past few years that has swung at about 40% of the first pitches of his plate appearances. The league average is more like 27%, 28%, and uh, Dickerson has been well above that number as well in terms of looking for first pitches to jump on. Uh, so that's uh, one particular element that I think makes him a, a nice um, 
a nice target for the Marlins considering that they hired as their bench coach and offensive coordinator James Rousen from the Twins. That was a, a interesting trait that the Twins carried in 2019 in route to setting the major league record for home runs in the season and for being just a great offensive team overall. They were very aggressive on the first pitch. So Dickerson will fit very well within this what may be somewhat of a new philosophy that the Marlins are looking for when acquiring offensive players. They, they like guys that are ready to swing at the start of a plate appearance and uh, recognize that pitchers throw a lot of pitches over the plate at the very first pitch of a matchup in order to get ahead in the count. And Dickerson is a guy that is not content with just taking that strike for granted. He's someone that swings often, puts the ball in play often in those situations. But here's the twist. For someone like Dickerson that is so aggressive early in the count and really aggressive in in all situations, who we know doesn't like to take walks, um, he somehow works really deep counts. This past season, 4.28 pitches per plate appearance, and that was uh, another weakness, I would say, that the Marlins had last season, is that as a team, they did not work deep counts at all. Average 3.83 pitches per plate appearances, that was the third lowest average in Major League Baseball. There's something to be said about the cumulative effect of a lineup that makes a starting pitcher work and forces the way into the soft underbelly of an opposing bullpen and getting more favorable matchups, or even before that, just taking a lot of pitches, uh, making the opposing starter uh, rely on more of his his secondary pitches before he, he'd like to, really disrupting that entire game plan because you're making him work and you're fouling off a lot of pitches, that's another particular thing that Dickerson does well. So for someone that's so aggressive and isn't drawing walks, the reason why he's extending these plate appearances is because he fouls the ball off a lot. One of the higher foul ball rates in the majors, you're getting used to it by now that this guy has pretty extreme tendencies as a hitter, and that's yet another one that he has fouling balls off and extending plate appearances Compared to the Marlins team average last year, nearly half a pitch more per plate appearance. That was a career high for him. That's not the norm. And uh, so that's something that we'll want to continue emphasizing with this guy. Coming off an especially weird year for him, that um, overall for his career, um, I I guess the things normalize a little bit more. His his lifetime average is 3.93 pitches per plate appearance. So that is slightly above the major league average. Uh, but it was really just this past year they made a very interesting change because that's coming off a 2018 season where he wasn't really working deep counts. Uh, a 3.73 pitches per plate appearance average in 2018. So it's an increase of four-tenths of a pitch per plate appearance compared to the Marlins team average. And for him personally, it's an extra half a pitch compared to the previous year. And this is weird. (laughs) This is weird for a guy that is in the middle of his career, um, last year being his age 30 season, to make such a big change in the way that he works counts. Uh, It is somewhat, you know, there is that um, qualifier that he missed a lot of time with the injuries, so it's not quite the same sample size that we're used to. Uh, But nonetheless, I mean, this is very unusual to see a guy make that kind of big change in in the way that he works deep counts and the effect that he has on the rest of the lineup. It'll be very curious to see how that carries over into 2020, whether he reverts to 2018 form, whether he figured out something in particular last year and wants to keep that going, 
or uh, whether he winds up somewhere in the middle, even if he winds up back at his career averages somewhere in the middle, that is still what I would say uh, an improvement to the Marlins offense. Now we flip to the defensive side of Corey Dickerson, uh, which raises a lot more questions than it actually answers when you really dig into it. He has spent most of his major league career as a left fielder, Uh, During his couple of years with the Tampa Bay Rays, he saw some significant playing time at designated hitter, but but most of his career in left field, uh, very early in his career, he played some center field and with a brief amount of experimentation in right field that he's also a few years removed from. In 2018, as we'd mentioned earlier, he did win a National League gold glove with the Pirates. According to defensive runs saved, 16 runs above average in his left field play, barely over a thousand total innings at that position. In terms of stat cast, they have an outs above average metric that put him at a plus 10 compared to the average player at his position. And same thing with ultimate zone rating, which comes from fan graphs, uh, 11.9 UZR per 150 games across the board. He rated out very favorably for his defense. Um, primarily because he was good at getting reads on balls uh, in front of him, coming in on balls. That's uh, the best information we have on that comes from StatCast, where he was several runs above average in getting balls in front of him. Fourth toughest batter to strike out in the league. This ball's popped up left side, and this is dropping toward left field, but caught by Corey Dickerson. He comes racing in and goes down to that feet-first slide nearing the foul line and puts it away made three excellent catches so far tonight he's done a good job out there as always nice play by Corey dickerson uh, and also playing very well on balls hit to his glove side hit to his left so as a left fielder if you imagine this balls hits your glove side are heading towards the gap towards the left center field gap so in addition to being able to field balls pretty well in front of him that would have been singles he was also making plays on balls in the gap that if they get by him it's more likely to be a double or a triple and he was just really consistently good, uh, particularly during the first half of that year. But throughout the whole year, he was a really effective defensive player in left field for the Pirates. Uh, the <laughs> the headache for me is that if you look at every other year of his career, that was not the case. This looks to be a pretty big outlier in his career. Only one other year where he was uh, a positive in terms of defensive run saved. Uh, He's a guy that has always tried to compensate for a below-average throwing arm, at least in terms of throwing strength on his arm. He's someone that tries to compensate that with his instincts and his range, uh, but he's not really an exceptional athlete, not an exceptional sprinter. So it, it makes you question how exactly he is so effective as an outfielder. And I, I guess the biggest indictment, really, of his defense is that the previous year, before he won the gold glove with the Pirates and he was playing for the Rays, he was an all-star in 2017, but that was primarily on the back of his bat, not his defense. And the Rays had him in the lineup close to every day, but very frequently had him as their designated hitter. So to have him in the lineup, but to not be using him defensively in those games, to think that they had three better defensive outfielders in the same lineup with him, I mean, that's a pretty big indictment of how they were valuing his defense. And so if you have an organization like the Rays thinking that um, he's a bat-first type of player and you have 
all the public data from his 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2019 seasons say that he was not all that much of an asset out there. I don't think it's reasonable to just presume that Dickerson will be a great defensive outfielder moving forward. Considering his age, going to be 31 next season, and although the indications are that he'll be fully healed from the foot injury come 2020, he is coming off a broken foot. He had plantar fasciitis early in his career, and he's a player that even at his very best, when he won that gold glove, he was very reliant on his 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 feet and getting good first step and good reads on a ball. So anything that potentially limits the burst that he has or the first step that he has as a defensive outfielder, that could be very costly to him as a player. Overall, the reason why you're still encouraged by all this, aside from that one season in the recent history, is that you compare it to the internal options that the Marlins had. Most of their defensive endings in left field last year played by either Austin Dean or Hale Ramirez. A little bit of Garrett Cooper went to left field as well. Curtis Granderson... And uh, I think Dickerson, even in the most pessimistic pessimistic scenario, that he's going to be an improvement over that. That's all we're looking for. We already know as an offensive player, Dickerson is going to be a big boost to this team, arguably the best hitter that they have going against right-handed pitching. And defensively in left field, he should be a boost to what they had. Uh, the reason why overall Marlins outfielders have been arguably the least valuable outfield group in baseball the past two years is a, a big factor, and that has been the defense, in and especially in left field. So Dickerson, even if you're not sure he's an average left fielder moving forward, even if he's slightly below average, that's still a big improvement on what they had with Harold and Dean and, and even Cooper, that, that Dickerson he has the pedigree, the recent pedigree, to potentially bounce back from 2019. And uh, at the very worst, he's somewhere in the range of being an adequate option out there and and that's part of this whole total equation Uh, moving forward that's part of why the marlins were willing to give him a multi-year deal even with the other outfielders that they have coming up through the system uh, someone that will try to challenge for an opening opening day spot like monte harrison but most of which are you're going to expect more towards the end of 2020 or in 2021 Uh, the reason why they were willing to give dickerson what appears to be a two-year fully guaranteed deal is because they do see a, a scenario where they would be able to trade him for some sort of significant return in the second year, being able to uh, offload some of the financial commitment to another team and maybe even getting a prospect or multiple prospects in return for Dickerson at that time when they feel they have very strong internal options that are ready ready for the for the majors. Uh, then again, they probably presume the same thing with Starlin Castro. Remember when they acquired him in the Stanton trade? He, he was making a little bit more money than Dickerson is. Dickerson is $17.5 million these next two years. Castro had about $22.5 million, $23 million left on his two years when they acquired him. And the assumption coming into the 2019 season is that when Isan Diaz was ready at second base, they'd be able to just move on from Castro, dump him to another team that wants another professional hitter in their lineup. And they weren't able to do that because Castro got off to a terrible slump throughout the entire first half of 2019. And uh, even though he bounced back in a big way the final few months of the year, other teams were not fully convinced about that, and they weren't thrilled with his lack of defensive versatility. Uh, For all we're saying about Dickerson, 
uh, and what he could potentially do in left field if everything goes right. He hasn't played center field since 2015, and even the experience that he had there, 2013, 2014, 2015, it was not a significant chunk of experience to make you believe that at this stage of his career he'd be able to pick it up again and do well. So that, so that brings us again to the fit that Dickerson has on this roster, where you expect him to start almost automatically whenever they face a right-handed pitching, a right-handed pitcher. And uh, based on the previous few years, I think they would give some serious consideration to letting him face select lefties. Uh, even though they do want to get other young players involved, the fact that Dickerson has handled same-handed pitching pretty adequately the past few years, it, it lends more to um, the possibility that he could be something close to an everyday outfielder for the Marlins. With Dickerson in the fold at this reported price, the Marlins payroll is getting pretty close to where it was in 2019. That was a concern that I had is whether they would really fully uh, redistribute all the money that was coming off the books from 2019, and uh, they've done that. Uh, it's worth noting that $22 million of this payroll is going to Wei Yin Chen, who's not going to be involved with the team after being released. Uh, so it's not... All that it's not like all that money is active money going towards players contributing to the team, but but overall they're at this moment projecting to be in the mid seventy million dollar range, seventy three to seventy five million dollars if they were to keep this team together at the reported arbitration projections, the guaranteed contracts, and filling it out with pre arbitration eligible players. There's still a possibility that Jose Ureña gets traded. The rhetoric coming from Michael Hill and some of the reports, such as from Craig Mish and Joe Frasaro, they hinted towards the possibility that Ureña is going to be a trade candidate over the next couple months because the Marlins aren't quite sure what his role will be on the team. And he's due about $4 million as an arbitration-eligible player. So if that does happen and they take minor league pieces back in return, then all of a sudden you're looking at a pretty significant gap between 2019 and 2020 payroll. All that being said, I think the assumption that we have to make at this point is that the position player group is pretty much set heading into next year. And it's going to be interesting to try to figure out how exactly all these pieces fit together. Because if we are to presume that Dickerson is the pretty steady left fielder, um, we can presume that if Isan Diaz uh, stays healthy, that he's going to get every opportunity to play regularly at second base. Behind the plate, you have Jorge Alfaro and Francisco Cervelli. That's a pretty strong combination. Miguel Rojas is going to be the returning shortstop. But last year was uh, somewhat better than expected from him offensively. There could be some regression there. And if there is, all of a sudden, you don't view him as necessarily a lock to play every day at shortstop, but maybe he returns more towards his utility player roots. They did acquire Jesus Aguilar, and they have Garrett Cooper returning, both of them being uh, very interesting first base options uh, as power hitters, disciplined hitters. Um, between those two, you would expect most of the first base opportunities to go to one of them. You have Brian Anderson, obviously him along with Jonathan VR are both guys 
coming off years and at a stage of their careers where you expect them to be true everyday players between Anderson and VR. Uh, but the question is exactly what positions they'll be playing. Anderson has split the past couple of years between third base and right field, especially in 2018, really establishing himself as a good defensive player at both positions. VR was a middle infielder with the Orioles before being traded over. Uh, if things go really well for both Isan and Rojas, then there's not going to be all that much playing time at those positions that would bump VR potentially to third, where he has some pro experience. And it's been suggested by Craig Mish that VR is going to get a look at center field as well. Uh, using Mish's words, uh, he's a candidate to be the opening day center fielder. And uh, I have some thoughts about that. I mean, we do have to give the Marlins staff some credit to what they did with Brian Anderson. Anderson had basically no outfield experience in his career until 2018, where kind of out of necessity, they had so much playing time available over there that they shifted him to right field. And that has worked out pretty well. But that does not work in all these cases. Just last year, they tried to convert JT Riddle to center field. And uh, that went really poorly. I mean, Riddle didn't hit to begin with, but his defense at center field also left a lot to be desired. He did not look comfortable out there. Um, Overall, if you look at all the cases the past couple of years, Austin Dean got some looks at first base late last year, and he looked fine at that position, but it's been a a little bit hit or miss. There's nothing, no real uh, firm evidence to believe that the Marlins are, have any sort of expertise in terms of making these kind of radical defensive adjustments to players that have learned a certain way for years and years. VR is a guy in the prime of his career now entering his eighth major league season, and he has never played a complete game in center field. I'll say that again. A guy that is being floated as a potential center field option for the Marlins has never played a complete game in center field as a major leaguer. So that seems to be a big leap to take to just assume that He's going to be there. Uh, A couple other guys that we expect to be in the mix for the opening day roster are Lewis Brinson and McNairis Sierra. Both of those guys are perfectly fine in center field. Sierra has the potential to be a plus defensive center fielder. The the question with them is the hit tool, with Brinson one of the worst hitters in recent baseball history for a guy in his mid-20s. And, uh, yeah, the history is, is not very good for players like him to suddenly figure it out. We know the great tools he has, the intangibles that he brings, uh, but the bottom line is his offensive production the past couple of years doesn't really justify even making the open gay roster. We'll see if he makes any firm adjustments in spring training to justify that. Magnera Sierra put up a 350 batting average during his limited major league time in 2019, but that sample size is just not significant at all. It was only 15 games before he suffered a hamstring injury heading into the offseason. His skill set is severely lacking in hard contact, so he's someone that relies so much on his legs, and he'll need to be a disciplined hitter as well in order to get on base that way. He's so impactful as a base runner, and we'll get to that very shortly in our final segment, but both with Sierra and Brinson, your two obvious internal options at center field, um, your leading internal options at center field, both of them have serious questions at overall players that make you wonder whether they deserve to be in the lineup on any sort of regular basis. And the wild card in all this is Monte Harrison, um, who is going to be entering his age 24 
season, a couple of years removed from arriving with Brinson in the Christian Yelich trade. He would have been up in the majors at some point last year, but just had repeated issues with his wrist that delayed the start of his 2019 season and then mid-season wrist surgery that he was able to return from down the stretch. Played really well in Puerto Rico for a few weeks this offseason that we've been tracking on Fish Stripes, and his tools are really sensational. The question being whether he can make enough contact to make his tools manifest themselves in terms of production. And uh, he certainly trended in a nice direction during 2019. Uh, just as much defensive potential as Sierra, maybe even more because of his plus arm strength that he brings to the table. Just a, a really exciting player that I think the most likely scenario is that the Marlins start him at AAA um, looking forward to uh, his service time and knowing that if he spends just a few weeks at the start of the year in AAA, that it ensures that he's under team control for the next seven seasons. But for a guy that is already 24, turning 25 next August, you have him already under control throughout his entire 20s um, through what you expect to be the prime years of his career. And if he produced pretty solidly at AAA and appears to be fully healthy heading into 2020, and considering the upside that he brings as a player and the kind of adjustments that he's made in the Marlins organization with his swing, um, doing all the right things, I don't know why he should be ruled out as an opening day option with all the potential that he has. And uh, with this clear question mark that the Marlins have in center field, he, he seems best suited to be the one that steps into that role, if not an opening day, then very soon afterwards. Um, a lot of moving parts, and it's a very good problem to have for the Marlins. Circling back to Dickerson, before we move on to our final segment, uh, I was pretty clear that my preference was for Yasiel Puig, who will have to find out ultimately how much money he does get on the market. Because for this Marlins team, the ideal fit was a player that would could be had for a two-year deal or less, um, so as to not limit their future financial flexibility, so as to make that player tradable in the event that their young outfielders do prove themselves worthy of filling in for the playing time that they have in the outfield. And all indications were that Plague could be had on a two-year deal. We saw the money that Avisiel Garcia got. We saw the money that Cole Calhoun got. And now Corey Dickerson at two years. All these players fit in a very similar bucket, being in or near the prime of their careers with some warts that made them not as desirable on long-term deals. Um, but they seemingly had the leverage to ask for a multi-year deal. And if Puig was available at a similar price to Dickerson, I still think that was the right move. Uh, the reporting from Craig Mish is that Puig wasn't ready to sign a deal yet, that there was some sort of holdup in him choosing a team, and the Marlins wanted some certainty heading into the new year. And that's totally fine. That's really understandable because they had all these at-bats to fill, and it would have not been an adequate resolution to me if they headed into the new year with with uh, Brinson and Sierra and Matt Kemp as the guys that were angling for playing time at the major league level. All those guys have a lot to prove during the spring and should not have been presumed as uh, surefire productive major leaguers. 
in Dickerson, they got a guy that you can definitely trust to be a solid bat and um, to relay some good habits to the rest of the team. Uh, but with Puig, he's a little bit younger than Dickerson by a year and a half. He also has a pretty consistent offensive track record, consistently above league average by weighted runs created plus. For the question marks about Dickerson's defense, uh, Puig did not rate all that well defensively either as a corner outfielder the past few years, but he does consistently provide value with his throwing arm. So that's one tangible tool that he brings defensively, whereas Dickerson doesn't. We're trying to just get a vague read on his instincts and his first step. Puig has that arm strength, and he has that overall athleticism that is greater than Dickerson's to make you believe that he could age pretty respectably as an outfielder over the next couple of years. Uh, just like Dickerson, Puig has some uh, dry stretches as an offensive player. With, with Dickerson, he was an all-star in 2017, but he got to the end of the year, and the reason why he was traded from the Rays coming off an all-star year is because his second half was terrible. He got into a really deep funk during that year, and... Um, just was not a significant player on their team towards the end of the year. Puig had some streakiness in him as well, especially at the start of the 2019 season with the Reds. That team got off to a disappointing start, and Puig was a guy in the middle of that who uh, was not hitting as he was expected to for that team. Got traded to the Indians at midseason, and uh, overall put up decent numbers, but he didn't hit for power. It was a really weird power drought where he only hit a couple home runs over the final couple months heading into free agency. So that's uh, that's a decent that's a real that's an understandable red flag that the Marlins may have had about Puig. This is no knock on Dickerson, but Puig was a guy that would have resonated with the fans more. Not just because he's Cuban, but because of his really energetic playing style, how expressive he is off the field. Um, speaking as reporters and also on social media, he's one of the best follows on Instagram. You can follow Corey Dickerson on Instagram too, at Corey Dickerson. Um, it's a lot more mild and not not, not updated quite as frequently. Uh, Puig was a, a marketing dream, even as someone that is uh, has some inconsistency in his past. He uh, is a very similar player to Dickerson the past few years and some of the same limitations as well. If he could have been had on a similar deal, even if it caused him to wait an extra few days, I think that would have been worth it. And until we find out exactly what we gets, uh, this will be a very interesting what if with the Marlins offseason. As we enter 2020, I have three big New Year's resolutions for the Miami Marlins. Uh, full disclosure, the original list that I was making out for this I had four resolutions, and the first one was do what it takes to sign Puig, but it's pretty clear at this point that the Marlins have gone with an alternative at that position. So, focusing on the other three, I want to see more aggressive base running for the Marlins in the majors next year. Among the bottom in the majors in stolen bases last year, stolen base attempts, stolen base efficiency, taking the extra base on balls in play. Uh, towards the end of the year, uh, John Birdie and Magnera Sierra were all on their own trying to lift up the team into respectability in those departments. But overall, um, it's it was disappointing last year because that was a team that entering spring training, I remember very distinctly Don Mattingly um, 
really emphasizing that they were going to be more aggressive on the bases and, and make things happen because of some uh, limitations that they thought they had in the power department. And they didn't follow through on that. They had good athletes like Harold Ramirez and Jorge Alfaro, even Brian Anderson, guys that were underutilized on the bases that were either conservative or um, they were being sent in very awkward situations. It was it was a disappointing part of the team in 2019. Um, I think it contributed a little bit to um, why they were worse in the standings than they had been the previous year, despite having comparable talent. And uh, that's an inefficiency that they should be able to take advantage of with this personnel moving forward. Secondly, the Marlins should lean on their kids. Here are some names on their 40-man roster. Edward Cabrera, George Guzman, Jordan Holloway, Umberto Mejia, Sixto Sanchez, Nick Neidert, Jazz Chisholm, Lewin Diaz, Monte Harrison, Jesus Sanchez, all these guys that don't have any major league regular season experience yet, a couple of them that pretty clearly will be kept in the minors throughout 2020 as a necessary step in their development. In most of those cases, though, if those guys will be in the high minor league levels, if they perform well, if they show the traits that should translate to major league success, then just bring them up when the opportunity presents itself. As much as we like some of the veteran additions that the team made this year, those guys could also be trade candidates coming up towards the middle of the season if some of these top prospects show themselves to be ready. We are past the point where this team leans on organizational fillers so to uh, not so subtly tank and uh, and help their draft position and maximize their uh, international free agent budget. I mean, those things are important. Um, the draft and international free agency, but the most successful teams are able to acquire good talent there without um, losing at the major league level at an epic rate. Realistically, we know this team is not going to be contending for a playoff spot. It would be fairly surprising if they finished anywhere but fifth in a very loaded National League East division, but there needs to be this uh, intermediate leap from where they were from 55 wins to uh, 70 wins somewhere in that ballpark. I think that's a realistic goal considering the moves they made and the talent that they have at these high minor league levels. It's not all about suppressing service time and uh, pushing things over towards uh, when you think you can contend because it's not realistic to turn into a contender overnight. It has to be this gradual progression. And this is the year where they take a pretty big leap forward, and uh, if all goes well, then all of a sudden you look at 2021 as a real opening to their competitive window. Uh, You can't look at it at that opening until you bring some of these prospects up to the majors and you see them succeed. They have several guys in this group that I expect to be very viable big leaguers as soon as the 2020 season, and uh, when injuries come up and when you have opportunities to move Uh, the short-term veterans to other surroundings and open up playing time, the Marlins should do that. They should give them their fans uh, a very clear look at the future, namely being guys that are ready to produce in the present. And uh, if you really believe in all this high caliber talent that they acquired in this farm system that is being widely regarded as an elite farm system in major league baseball, then there comes a point where You need to test these players in the big leagues and uh, give your fans a reason to have confidence in the future.
My final 2020 resolution for the Marlins is advocating for one particular move, extend Brian Anderson. At some point this coming year, work out a long-term deal with a homegrown player that has already established himself as a big part of your solution. Had a very good rookie year. He took steps forward from that in 2019. Plus defense, good raw power, good discipline. He has all the potential to continue improving these next couple years into one of the better, well-rounded players on a contending team. And they have control over him for the next one, two, three, four years, if you include 2020. Um, But a key for this Marlins team moving forward, they're always going to be cost conscious, even when the new TV deal comes in, even if they get naming rights for the ballpark. This is never going to be... the highest salaried team in the sport. They're always going to have to have some efficiency in building their team. And part of that is making sure when you develop a good homegrown player that you keep that player throughout his prime years and you do it at what is a very acceptable rate, something that um, allows you to further complement that player on your roster. Looking forward, the Marlins have been able to improve their team without affecting their long-term financial flexibility at all. There is nothing on the books for them in 2022 and beyond. This is a nice place to start with Anderson, making sure to lock him up before he shows his full potential. Because at that point, then the temptation to reach free agency and the asking price on an extension only goes up as Anderson continues to establish himself as a high-quality regular player. This is a nice... This is to me, the pretty obvious move to make in building this team. Uh, they did it with Christian Yelich. When Yelich came up to the majors very early in his career, uh, showed some natural offensive talent. Um, they gave him a seven-year extension. And perhaps it's not on the card for Anderson, considering that his ascension to the majors came a little bit later in life. Maybe that's not necessary, but buying out the arbitration years, one or two in free agency, giving themselves a club option at the end of it. Um, this, this is a guy that will certainly be earning in excess of 12, maybe even $15 million a year if you're valuing his free agent years right now. Uh, but that's very manageable considering the trajectory that this player is on. Uh, someone that I think every fan uh, in the Marlins fan base is appreciating they appreciate what he brings and all these different facets of the game, uh, doing all the right things, speaking publicly to the media and off the field. He's, he's someone that's part of this core for sure. At, at a time where there's still a lot to be decided about who's a real keeper in this Marlins organization. Anderson is one of them pay BA and, uh, continue and continue solidifying, uh, what this Marlins team is going to look like into a new and promising decade. What are your New Year's resolutions for the Marlins? Anything within their control that you think needs to happen this coming year in order to set up the team for uh, long-term success or do right by their fans? Make sure to let us know on fishstripes.com in the comments of, of the articles or on social media at fishstripes on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, what are you looking forward to this coming year for what the team can continue to do in heading in the right direction. I'm anxious to hear what you say and looking forward to continuing Fish Bites into 2020. This is Eli Sussman. Go Fish! Go Fish!